and imagine the watching world saying, you know, those Christians, those evangelicals, they are the most well-informed, humble, servant-hearted, and engaged citizens in our nation. Well, good morning, Crash United. I'm so glad you've joined us this morning for this online message. This is our final message in our series, Our Place in Our Nation, Power, Politics, and the People of God. We've spent the last couple weeks outlining seven principles of Christian political theology, seven Christian political principles, all rooted in that primary confession that Jesus is Lord. And we we saw these principles about how God ordains human government, how Satan and sin have corrupted human government and political power, and how political and governing authority can do both good and bad, and that God will call them to account for both, that God does his kingdom work on earth in this age in and through the church, the local church, and therefore that the local church is the most important political institution on earth, and that people, Christians, should be people in their lives in in society who seek the order, justice, and peace of the society in which they find themselves. And so what we're going to talk about this morning is we're going to talk about a few practices or principles or habits or attitudes or virtues of Christian political action. Um, So we've talked about what we believe, and, and we have to do that because belief always precedes action. We do things because we believe something, whether we believe that we need to change lanes to turn left when we're on Federal Highway or whether we believe that it's going to rain and so we take an umbrella. We, we act based on what we believe. And our political actions are going to flow from political beliefs. And so that's why we spent um, a good amount of time discussing these principles of Christian political theology or seven Christian political principles. In light of these principles now, we, we're addressing questions of what we should do. And you might have questions like, um, should you put a candidate's sign in your front yard? Should you hang a candidate's flag from your front porch or peel a bumper sticker onto your onto your car? Should you chip in when you get that fundraising email from that candidate? How should you act politically, and especially in these next couple of weeks as we move up toward the November 3rd election, how should you respond in what you do? Well, what we're going to talk about this morning and in this message is we're going to talk about Christian political practices. And these aren't going to be nitty-gritty details about um, one, one you know, specific candidate or one specific policy issue. These are going to be more like postures or attitudes or virtues that Christians should live into in terms of politics. And here's the first one. Here's the first one. Christians need to pray. And it's a, it's a cliche and it's something that we sh- it's like an obvious sort of duh statement, but Christians should be people who pray for political and governing leaders 
They should be praying about elections. They should be praying not just for their favored candidates or for their favored candidates to win, but they should be praying about God's will to be done and, and for God to grant wisdom to, to uh, the people involved and, and peace in the midst of the process. Look at 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil, tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases our God and Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Notice here that God calls us to pray for and even give thanks for everyone. This applied to Christians in Imperial Rome, to pray for Caesar, to pray for Nero, to pray for some of these really terribly uh, wicked rule, rulers in many ways. And, and if it applied to them, then, then it certainly applied to Christians when Obama was president. And it certainly applies to Christians when Trump is president. And it will certainly apply to Christians, whoever is elected in this next election. Christians should be praying for our governor, Ron DeSantis, and, and for our mayors, uh, Glenn Trost of Lighthouse Point, or Bill Gans of Deerfield, or Rex Harden of Pompano Beach, or Scott Brook of Coral Springs, or Scott Singer of Boca Raton. Christians should be praying for commissioners and state representatives, or congressional representatives, for senators, Marco Rubio and Rick Scott, for Ted Deutsch of the 22nd Congressional District, or Alcee Hastings of the 20th Congressional District. Christians should see yard signs, political yard signs, as an invitation from God to pray, to pray for that person, to pray for their integrity to pray for their grace in their life, to pray for God's will to be done. Christians should pray for those who lead in the sphere of politics. One the way I pray for our leaders is I pray four C's. I pray for um, our, our leaders to have um, character, competence, clarity, and courage. I pray for them to be men and women of character, that they would have integrity, that they would act in good faith, uh, not just in their own self-interest. They would do the right thing for the right reason. I pray for our leaders to be people of competence, that they would know the job they're called to do and they would do it well. Um, politics and governing, like any sphere, you, you, you can't just walk in and think you know exactly how to do things. You have to learn. You have to grow. So I pray for competence for our leaders. I pray for clarity, that they would have wisdom, that they would get good information. They would get reliable information, information that's worth trusting, and that then they would act on that information and that they would act fourthly in courage, that they would have the courage, that they would have the moral fortitude, that they would have the, 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 this, this moral integrity in order to do the right thing, especially when that right thing may compete with their own political self-interest. So I pray those four C's for character, competence, clarity, and courage for our leaders, for the leaders of our local community and leaders statewide and nationally. There, um, in, in, the, in the scripture, there's a story of, um, 
of the, the, the second temple's rebuilding. So, so in 586, Babylon had come in and had destroyed the temple, Solomon's temple, and it just raised it to the ground, just like totally, totally destroyed it. And close to 70 years later, a number of exiles had returned to the land under the new empire and imperial ruler Cyrus, who, and they'd been authorized to start to rebuild the temple, but they'd sort of lost heart. And so God sent a couple of prophets. There was a governor in the land named Zerubbabel, and, and he sent two prophets. First, he sent a prophet named Haggai, and uh, we, we taught through Haggai uh, last year, and those, the sermons are on our website if you're interested. And he also sent another prophet named Zechariah, and they, they were serving really at the same time. Zechariah was probably a little younger, came a little bit after, a couple months after Haggai. And, and God gives Zechariah a series of visions in the night. And in, in one of those visions, the fifth night vision in Zechariah 4, um, God shows Zechariah a vision of the rebuilding of the temple. And he calls Zerubbabel, the governor, to continue to rebuild the temple. And though the, the, the foundation is laid, and it's a day of small things we see there in Zechariah 4, that he will rebuild the temple. And, 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 and in, earlier in that section, there's a very famous passage that says, not by might, but nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, the, the commanding king of heaven. And so we see here that all that God wants to do in the world, whether in the church or in society and politics and in government, we start with prayer. Because prayer tunes us into the mind and the heart of God and the action of the Holy Spirit that can do what we could never do. We pray for political processes, elections, and leaders. The second thing, we pay. Um, we, we've already seen this basic principle of Christian political vision, uh, that, that God appoints and he establishes governing authority, and that because he in his kingship has, has entrusted them with this authority, that they do have real authority on the earth. And he calls us to pay those authorities, both in terms of our money and taxes and in terms of our respect and honor. Matthew 22, 15 through 22 is a story of the Pharisees. They come up to Jesus and says, the Pharisees went and plotted how to trap him by what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we don't, we know that you are truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. You don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Perceiving their malicious intent, Jesus said, why are you testing me, hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. They brought him a denarius. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's. They said to him, then he said to them, give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Remember, we've seen that the Christian's primary allegiance is to Jesus as Lord. The Christian's primary political community and political institution is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the local church of the church family that they're a part of. And we owe primary allegiance to God in worship. 
We also owe secondary authority to the human rulers that God has put in place over us in his providence. We serve God above all, and in many cases, serving God requires us to pay taxes, to pay honor to those in authority in our social, political context. Romans 13, 1 and 6 and 7 says, Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. For this reason you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's servants continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone, taxes those to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. Titus 3.1. Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. 1 Peter 2, submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. Paying taxes and honor to the governing authorities in the time and the place in which you live. And this includes recognizing the good and sometimes mysterious providence of God in placing you in the, in the time and the nation where you live in your earthly citizenship. Acts 17.26 says, From one man God has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. God has determined for you, if you are in our church and you're an American in our church, or you maybe maybe uh, you've come from somewhere else, but you're in America now, and maybe you're working on your citizenship, God has appointed that you would be here now. He's appointed the times and the places of the dwellings of the nations and the people in the nations. And in his mysterious providence, sometimes those people live under evil and oppressive regimes and they have no ability to escape. Sometimes people live under regimes and they have the ability to escape or to, to emigrate and to go somewhere else and to immigrate to a new, a new nation. And, and sometimes he allows us in, in our moment in America to live in a constitutional republic where we have freedoms unlike most people in the history of mankind. In all of this, God is calling us to pay proper respect and honor to the governing authorities. Christians do not quietly or passively give up on their hope for a better society, but they do trust God that he has put them where he wants them. And they live into this. We talked last week about the, the threefold office of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And, and so Christians live into their vocation as prophetic, priestly, and kingly witness. And they fulfill their vocation as salt and as light, all while trusting God. In all of these circumstances, God commands Christians to trust his good and gracious providence, to pay the governing authority what they're owed, whether taxes or honor. Christians pray, Christians pay. Three, Christians learn. Christians are people who follow Jesus. We're disciples, students, learners. Our prime textbook is the scripture. Our prime classroom is the church. And our laboratory is the world in which we live. 
And part of our calling includes learning the scripture, learning the book, but also includes learning the context of our life. First Chronicles 12, 32 says, The Issacharites who understood the times knew what Israel should do. We have to faithfully understand our own cultural moment. The word for times here refers to an indefinite season, a, a time period. Christians should learn history, political thought, literature, art, science. Specifically, faithfully following Jesus as a Christian in 2020 demands that we have some context for the moment we find ourselves in socially and politically. Where did America come from? What led to the formation of these United States? Why do we have a constitution? How does it work? What's a democratic republic? Who influenced our culture by reading and writing and leading and deciding along the way? Now, you don't have to get a degree in history or political science or become a lawyer, but Christians should be unusually informed about the things that influence where we've come from and what's happening and where we're going. You should watch things and read things and listen to things that help you understand the times. You should redeem the things you're already doing. You should be investing yourself, yes, into scripture, into good books, into Bible study, into community, into worship. And you should also be faithfully intent, intending to learn your home. You should be intending to learn your earthly citizenship. And so instead of just binge watching that throwaway Netflix show or watching that shock jock on XYZ cable news at eight o'clock, invest yourself into something that will help you learn. Maybe watch a documentary. I've watched some Ken Burns documentaries on the, the Roosevelt's or the, the Dust Bowl or the men who built America on history. None of these things are perfect. They're not, you know like reading like a scholarly monograph, but they are informative. Maybe instead of just looking at your Facebook timeline or reading mommy blogs you, or, or, or car reviews, you could read a presidential biography over a series of months. Maybe instead of just listening to sports radio, you could listen to biography or a trusted source of news. Redeem what you're doing for the sake of, of understanding the times so you can know what Israel should do. You can think of kind of a spectrum here. You can think of um, an expert, like an expert in const the Constitution or expert in political science or an expert in history. And then over here you have someone who's ignorant, who knows nothing or next to nothing about those things. And what I'm calling for us to do, and I think Christian discipleship in a, being faithfully present in a moment requires us to move further away from the ignorant and closer to the expert. But in between expert and ignorant, there's this, there's this middle space, and that's the middle space of being informed. Christians should be the most informed engage, political um, actors in our nation. Christians should know what's happening and why. Christians should be people who pray as they should, who pay as they should, and who are informed about what they should be informed about. Not just taking talking points from your favorite XYZ pundit. 
faithfully seek to understand the times. The fourth thing, serve. Pray, pay, learn. Those things all lead to serving. We have a mission. We have a mission to reach people with the gospel. And we have a mission to show the love of God to our neighbors. Serving is an act of loving our neighbor as ourselves. It used to be that someone who entered politics was said to enter public service. And we've lost that. Now it's about entering public consciousness. And, and, and it's all about airtime and, and getting, getting on, on the, the front page of this website or trending on Twitter, making news, making memes, making viral videos. And we've taken, there's a, there's a wonderful little book uh, by a guy named Yuval Levin called A Time to Build about institutions. And he's, he basically said institutions used to be something that would shape a person. An institution is, is like a, it can be an organization or it can be uh, some sort of network thing, like a family's an institution, marriage is an institution, the presidency is an institution, Congress is an institution, the church is an institution. So th these things used to shape people and make them better. But now what's happening is institutions have gone from being, Levin says, from being a mold that shapes to being a platform that elevates, that people don't enter institutions to serve, but they enter institutions in order to be served. And friends, this is contrary to the heart of Jesus. Look what he says to James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who approached him, Mark 10, 35 and following, and said, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, "Will you, you will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christians should be the most well-informed and humbly servant-hearted people in our nation, specifically in the realm of political action. The, the nation should witness us in action and say, well, I don't always agree with their beliefs or policies or their decisions, but they know what they're talking about, and they are committed to the common good more than their own self-interests and their own political interests. Whether speaking from the prophetic margin 
like John the Baptist, or sitting close to kingly power in an oval-shaped office like Esther or Nehemiah, Christians should be intent to serve. Not just to serve their own interests, but to serve the interests of those that are on the heart of God. Too many Christians seem to approach politics with the other, from the other direction and from, the, from, from this sort of opposing sort of adversarial mindset. Republican Christians want to own the libs and crush the competition. Democratic Christians want to, want to resist republicanism and even the good things of a Republican government might do. Christians, though, they don't primarily serve the interests of any party or tribe, even the one that they find to most closely align with their principles. They don't take their own preferred political powers, political parties, power players, and serve them. They serve those who are closest to the heart of God. And we know who those are. The Bible tells us in the Old Testament, there's a quartet of vulnerable people that God constantly calls his people to love and to serve. The poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. This quartet is the Christian's constituency. The poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. And Christian political action should be disproportionately focused on seeking order, justice, and peace for those who are least likely to receive it. We should care for these who are, who, who are most vulnerable and most on the margin. Because if Christians don't serve them, who will? Neither party cares for all of the people that God cares about. Neither party cares for all of these vulnerable people who are beloved by God. Neither party equally values both preborn babies and immigrant babies. Neither party loves preborn black babies and grown black men. Neither party looks to the heart of God in fullness, and cares for every person that God cares about. Christians should be those who serve, and they serve the most vulnerable. And that means sometimes our, our values, our principles, and our practices might align with one party, and at other times they might align with another party. Pray, pay, Learn, serve, and then fifth, engage. Christians should not separate themselves from the politics of their moment, but they should be something of an opposition party that unsettles the political power plane and the political standards of the moment. They also should join into political organizations and parties. I'm not saying that to be a Christian requires you to be a political independent. That is one option available to you. But the reality is, if there are no Christians acting as salt and light with the Republican Party, and there are no Christians acting as salt and light in the Democratic Party, then 
Who is there to preserve the good and to expose the bad? Who is there to preserve the good and to expose the bad? Now, in God's common grace, sometimes and often those things do get preserved in some form. But what I'm saying is that if we polarize to the point where we only engage one side or the other or neither, who will be the salt and light in those places? If all the pro-life Democrats leave the Democratic Party and become Republicans, and if all the pro-racial justice Republicans leave the Republican Party to become Democrats, we are worse as a nation and not better. We need to voice our, our, our values and our, our principles and our beliefs and vote such that we refuse to otherize and anathematize those who are different than us. I know many Christians who literally said, you can't be a Christian if you vote for Obama. I know other Christians who say, you can't be a Christian if you vote for Trump. And I also heard the other side, any Christian should vote for Obama and you can't be a Christian if you don't vote for Trump. What that is doing, friends, that's nothing more than doing what we saw from the very beginning in this series in John 11 with the Sanhedrin, turning politics into a religion and letting our political goals supersede our theological beliefs. The objective reality of our church, Cross United Church, is we have some Republicans and we have some Democrats and we have some independence. And we need Christians who are intent on seeking the order, justice, and peace of our community as salt and light in, in the political sphere. We need, we need Christians who will faithfully do what we've talked about, who will pray, pay, learn, and serve in the ways that are available to them, and then vote with a good conscience and, 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 and do that in good faith as a good neighbor we need Christians who will run for city councils and for, to run for a mayor. We need Christians who will work in campaigns. We need Christians who will run for office and serve in various political capacities and political organizations. We need Christians in these places. Scripture doesn't present us with a one-size-fits-all approach of political engagement. Joseph, Esther, Nehemiah, they were very close to the political powers of the day, the most powerful person in the world, and they were right there with them. On the other hand, after being manipulated and cornered, Herod, Israel's local ruler, had John the Baptist executed in the wilderness, after the, the prophetic voice in the wilderness, and he, he had him put to death. Men like William Wilberforce worked in and through British Parliament to abolish the slave trade and eventually slavery in England. A man like Abraham Kuyper in the Netherlands was a theologian who eventually started a new political party and became prime minister and was, was influential in the life of another theologian named Hermann Bavink, and, and he wrote one of the great works of theology of the last hundred years, and he also served in the Dutch parliament. What would it look like? What could it look like for Christians to live into this vision? To pray, pay, learn, engage, and serve like Christ calls us to do. What could it look like for you to spend the next two and a half weeks 
praying for every candidate on the ballot in your precinct, praying every time you see a political sign, not just praying imprecatory prayers that that person would win or lose, not praying for your necessarily your preferred outcomes, but praying for God's will to be done, praying for order, justice, and peace. What could it look like for you to give thanks for those people in positions of governing authority, especially the ones you don't particularly like? What could it look like to you to, for you to determine to honor those who are eventually elected, whether you like them or not? What could it look like for you to learn the story of our nation and of our community? What could it look like for you to determine to be a servant in this area, to serve and to, to have your primary political calculus be, I am here to serve, especially to serve those who are vulnerable and God loves the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. What could it look like for you to change your political calculus from serving your own self-interest or your own preferences to serving those in the most need? What could it look like for you to engage Maybe that just means spending a few minutes and really learning about every person on the ballot. Yeah, even those judges that nobody knows about and doing some research. Or, or, or maybe for you it looks like, you know what, I'm going to get involved in this, this campaign and I, I really believe it's, it's something that would be a benefit and I'm going to be salt and light there and there's some things I really disagree with and maybe I can have a voice to speak into that and to speak the truth to power. Maybe it means that, that you consider maybe one day running for office or getting involved in politics in a more vocational or meaningful way. There are, like I said, many ways to engage as a prophet, as a priest, as a king in a prophetic voice from the wilderness, in a priestly role in the church, and in a kingly role in administration, politi political engagement, and governance. What could it look like for a community and a nation to be inhabited by churches full of Christians who make it their ambition to do these things, to pray, pay, serve, learn, and engage. What could it look like and imagine the watching world saying, you know, those Christians, those evangelicals, they are the most well-informed, humble, servant-hearted, and engaged citizens in our nation.